I guess you can argue that the fantasy aspects of this movie like make it untraditional. You know, it it makes it an untraditional war film. But I guess I just like wasn't that interested in the war plot line when the fantasy aspects that del toro gives us are so luscious and amazing and really captures the wonder that ophelia is feel is feeling you know and the fear you know as she's kind of entering this world and trying to figure it out but i kept feeling like every time that version of the movie like felt like it was starting just like went right back to the war plot line and I think one of the reasons that the war plotline didn't work for me has to do with the fact that a lot of it's just very, very cliche, even though I know it's based on truth. Opening this week's show was the Red Carpet Podcast, discussing Pan's Labyrinth and the way the visuals and design elevate the film. This discussion and our viewing of the highly regarded Shape of Water has inspired us to have a conversation about the power of visuals in film. I'm Hiro of the True Bromance Film Podcast, and I'm joined this week by Jesse Lauren. And this is Marcus Played, the movie podcast about movie podcasts and the discussion that come from them. She deaf? Mute, sir. She can hear you. You clean that lab. You get out. This may very well be the most sensitive asset ever to be housed in this facility. You may think that thing looks human. Stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? This creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. looks at me he doesn't know how i am incomplete he sees me as i am all right jesse so we're talking about the shape of water this week and along with that i mean it's pretty self-explanatory the power of visuals and i think no better uh filmmaker exemplifies that than guillermo del toro so I think I, I'll, I'll just lead this off with I'm not a visuals type of guy. I'm a very much a, a storytelling, the script, the story. I like to go along this journey sort of thing. And for me, visuals are always secondary um, in a film. I mean, I can always be wowed by them. Yeah, that's great. But if the story isn't there, I check out immediately. Like, it's just tap out. Um uh, all the fish sticks in the world aren't going to bring me back in. So um, what about you? Like when you watch a film, what do you sort of search for when you're, when you're, uh, when you're, you know, looking for a good time? I, you know, it's kind of the same with me. Um, I enjoy visually pleasing material, obviously, but as you mentioned, it's kind of secondary, you know, um, sometimes they can be even handed and, like, I remember the first time I just talked to uh, Andrew about uh, darker kids' films, and I remember the first time I saw The Secret of Nim. And just that opening scene and the beautiful animation, it, the, the mystery and the um, setting 
uh, it just immediately captured my heart and imagination. And I feel like it was both the story and the mystery and the art all like, well, that's not both. That's three. Um, <laughs> but it was all counting. Isn't mandatory on Marcus played. <laughs> it's not mandatory. Good. I'm glad it's past eight o'clock. So, you know, my brain cells are all checked out, but, um, having that combination, uh, presented, it's just, there's no better feeling than, uh, having the perfect mixture of art, you know, story, art, ambiance, all of that. Um, it's why we go to the movies. It's why I go to the movies anyway. And uh, so I completely agree with you. You know, visuals are important for sure, or they can elevate material. But unless you have the bones of a good story, a good script, uh, good uh, good acting, good direction, then it's all for naught. Right. I guess maybe like going with Shape of Water here, um, obviously we, we're recording this shortly after all the nominations for the Academy Awards came out. And I think it's leading the charge, right? For like 13 nominations or whatever it is. I don't know. I can't, again, counting isn't, uh, is it mandatory on no Marcus played here, but it does <laughs> have best picture, best director, um, all of those things, a couple actor categories, actress categories, that sort of thing. But what, what was your experience with the film? I mean, do you feel that, the movie is a complete film or is it really kind of hinging on those visuals? I thought it, it, it was a really exquisite film. I thought it was extremely complete. Uh, one of my favorite things about it was the, uh, I guess the correct term would be allegory, but the whole fiddler on the roof, a bird may love a fish, but where would they build a home together sort of thing. And like a, the bird and the fish uh, metaphor is layered uh, in obvious and not so obvious ways, like throughout the film. And I really enjoyed the uh, simplicity of it. And, you know, obviously it's a fairy tale, it's del Toro, it's uh, out there at times, but I thought that it all came together uh, very cohesively and very well. And I just absolutely adored it. Uh, how about you? Yeah, the, I think the movie really, like you're saying, when you were talking about The Secret of Nim. It sucked you right in right at the beginning. It, the film obviously sucks you right in with that like water open that you know takes you through her apartment and then just sort of drops you into that reality. And I think that without trying to spoil it too much, when you layer that against the the very finale, the the final shot, and sort of the reveal that we get there, it it, it right there in those two sequences, those two really beautiful sequences underwater tell one story really quickly if you just cut out everything in the middle you know those bookends are its own story and i i really appreciated that but I, I i enjoyed the movie i enjoyed the movie quite a bit i don't know if i'm like on the i loved it sort of thing um I, i'm a little off put by the del toro's um very binary villains you know they're always these uber bad people you know in pan's labyrinth it's like this uber bad guy and here it's this uber bad guy and it's there's never a lot of gray area with him you know he's very much this is right this is wrong um but that is the essence of a fairy tale i guess right i mean that's the way our our fairy tales our kids books are meant to be told and read and that sort of thing so i mean i think it does it does he executes what he's looking to do, right? He's looking to tell a fairy tale, like you said. So, yeah, I mean, and then obviously, not just, I guess, would 
set design and sort of like little nuggets throughout the film count as visuals visuals like what counts as visuals right because that opening sequence which she's after when she's going to work or whatever and she's going through the city there's all these little things sort of in the background you know the tv's playing and they're, they're having movies and and i noticed that quite a bit and the signs they're very prominent as they pop out at you uh the sign of the theater that she that she uh, uh lives in um all of that stuff there's just it's the movie is just rife with little nuggets of things that sort of keep popping out at you. And it's, it does. The movie is very, I think, I mean, the, the general overall plot is, is, is relatively simple. I think it's not, uh, it's, it's not very, uh, difficult to follow or anything like that. It's not this like Tinker Taylor soldier spy thing where you're, you know, inundated with this crap. But I think that, the the visuals and that set design and the immersion into the film really help you pull along into what he's trying to do. Uh, agreed. It adds to the ambiance. I was actually really surprised um, because you know I, I follow Del Toro and usually most of his films are very sp- specifically him, but recently he's been doing a lot of. It almost seemed like homage. Um, uh, kind of like with the uh, Crimson Peak and the noir theme, you know what I mean? Like it, it was very reminiscent of other work that wasn't specifically him. Uh, in this, uh, I was struck by how much it reminded me of Amelie. I haven't seen Amelie in a long time, but you know, kind of dragged me through it. Well, it was almost immediate um, from the uh, from the music choice to the uh, eccentric female lead. Um, to the whole, you know, uh, fish out of water freak sort of motif. Um, and then, you know, everything just being very saturated and uh, delicate and shiny and beautiful. You know what I mean? Like the visuals, the entire feeling of the film was extremely Amelie to me, um, which I didn't dislike. And it didn't feel like he was stealing the identity of the other film. It just, it, it felt kind of on the Crimson Peak level of homage, almost, to something that he uh, saw that affected him and he enjoyed, and he wanted to put his own uh, spin on it. So No, that makes total sense, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you know, to go back to what you were saying about like the binary villains, and I, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Um, I feel like, on its face, most uh, fairy tale villains are purely bad you know what i mean and they're meant to be and they're meant to be on like the very other end of the evil spectrum uh kudos to whoever did the sound effects for that as well because oh my god when michael shannon's got that candy rolling around in between his teeth you know what i mean like throughout crazy oh my god but like from the beginning you know what i mean it's like sound effects is something that i really specifically pay attention to and will really draw me into a film if done well or push me away if done badly and um yeah, I just couldn't. Like, from the second that he put that candy in his mouth and started rolling it around in between his teeth, it was like, ugh. Like, immediately he yeah. grated <laughs> on me. It was, like, such a great effect, such a great little touch to make yeah, exactly. you automatically hate somebody. Yeah, exactly. that nastiness of him, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the thing is, is that, like, we don't know his backstory. We don't know what he's been fed. And if you actually want to talk about villains, um, oh, darn it. I'm sorry, I forgot his name was it Hofstetler? Hofstetter in uh, the... Shape of Water. Yeah, like he was 
Richard, uh, technically, Doctor Robert Hofstetler, Michael Stuhlbarg's character. Yeah. Yep. Oh my God, he was amazing. Um, is, is he ever but, not know, amazing though? I mean, is Stuhlbarg ever not good? I've not seen him until this year. Really he popped up and blew my mind in both of these, in, in this and Call Me by Your Name. You should watch and, uh, a serious man. I think it's a Coen Brothers joint. I, I'm not sure, but he was really, is. really awesome in that. After Call Me By My Name, I looked him up because I was like, oh, that's the same guy. I saw that after The Shape of Water. I was like, that's that same guy who did such a great job um, despite his poor cheek injury. I don't know what Del Toro's fascination is with like injuring uh, people in the cheek, but my God, ugh, so cringeworthy. Anyway, which one's worse, but, um, so this one or the one from uh, from Pan's Labyrinth with mm, the, mm, the mm, Joker smile mm. thing that he's got going on? Oh, God, they're both terrible. I mean, really. And I knew it was coming, too. I was like, well, he injures everyone in the cheek. I wonder how this is going to... Oh, yep, there it is. And, uh, ah, like, it was just terrible. Ah, uh, yeah, brutal. <laughs> it was awful. But um, he did a great job. And the, a case could be made that he is technically a villain. He's just not the villain in this story. You know what I mean? So it's like, I do think that he can kind of play, you know, or, like, even take Crimson Peak, for example. Like, is Tom Hiddleston a full-on villain? I guess you know it I mean? depends like, on the perspective. Like, whose perspective are you looking at from? If you look at him from Chastain's perspective, I guess he's not really the villain. <laughs> no. Um, but I'm just saying, like, there's definitely different uh, levels to it. But, you know, if anyone's going to play a full-on vicious villain, then Michael Shannon's the man to do it. Um, but, you know, back to visuals and everything, uh, what were your immediate thoughts? Like, you, you'd mentioned the book ending of the water imagery. Yeah. Um, anything else strike you? Uh, like, do you think that it overcame the story or over overshadowed the story? Or do you think that it actually accented well? I think this is the, probably the first Del Toro movie where I, I think that, that the balance is achieved really well. I mean, aside from something like Blade 2 or Hellboy, where um, I guess those also work as well. But for me, in these very original sort of from-the-heart films that he's made... I think this is the first time that that there's super balance there because I think that sometimes like in Crimson Peak the visuals overshot the story by a, by a by a country mile. Um, I really wasn't True. fond of that because I got sucked into the visuals, but then that plot just kept dragging me down. Especially when old Charlie Hunnam comes around, <laughs> and that, that's my answer. Really, is just it's just that balance is there, and the story is is good enough, and the the, the acting I think is also something that adds to that balance, right? That that keeps you in the loop and keeps you sort of caring. Um, Sally Hawkins is obviously doing a fantastic job. Um, and, you know, Octavia Spencer, she, I mean, I wish I could have got a little bit more of her. She kind of plays a, a, oh, yeah. a, a bit of a, uh, a generic character, but it's, but it's still, I mean, there, you never have a moment of lapse, even like the places that they live. It's this, Sort of, it looks like the attic from the Goonies or something with all the crap that they have laying around in the background. You know what I mean? And all yeah. of that tells a story, and it's just constant barrage of, of story through visuals. And I think that in this case, in a case like Del Toro, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, Crimson Peak, uh, even though it didn't work for me completely, the visuals are all carrying that film. They 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 serve to to really to work with the film. And I think, and I was you know thinking about our our topic today. And thinking about other ways that visuals can be used, like I think of a, a movie like Sin City, 
where that you know that it's a massive aesthetic. You're talking about like the that comic book, that black and white things that pop up in color that are not in color. It's just a barrage, and that is like an, it, that is the I think the epitome of immersion, right? I mean, you've seen Sin City, right? Oh yeah, love it. Yeah, I, I mean that that aesthetic there works perfectly. But it's interesting to see the second one. Where it you watch the same exact aesthetic is applied to a story that just is garbage, <laughs> and it just completely falls flat. It, it, I don't, from my perspective, I don't think it's enough. Uh, I would completely agree. You know, I've got um, you know talking about visuals uh, going hand in hand with a good story. I'm, I'm Tarsem Singh is brought to mind for me. He did uh, the Cell and the Fall. Oh God, yeah. Okay, I do. Yeah. Is that the Jennifer Lopez thing? The cell, yeah. Yeah. Um, with a uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, and I mean, there's some imagery from that film that will never leave my brain. It's just so iconic and imaginative, and sometimes horrifying. But uh, my personal favorite is The Fall. I, I love that film, and it's so uh, visually pleasing. But the story that goes along with it is just as pleasing. Similarly, you know, Julie Tamer, you know, she's got some hit, hits or miss. You know, Titus is amazing. Frida is amazing. People are really iffy on Across the Universe. But, like... Titus even has that that visual right on the cover, you know, with Anthony Hopkins with all that blue crap all over him. It's mm-hmm. just a striking sort of... Like, even the the cover art is its own artwork. And I, and I, I pulled it up, and you know, the Frida poster, the Across the Universe posters, they're very art heavy stylized and, yeah. and those are three movies that i've never seen so i mean just for, <gasps> no i haven't seen sorry. any of them i oh, can man. say that i okay i'm sorry i've seen frida i've seen okay, frida i was gonna say i suggest you start with frida yeah. uh, titus might be a little bit too much if you're not into shakespeare and across the universe it takes a very specific palette to enjoy it but uh i love julie tamer's style but visuals are only visuals if they don't go along with the mastery of the rest of it um, I think that that's, I'm, I'm trying to think of like a good example. Well, I guess you could say Zack Snyder is a pretty good example there for that me. That is a great example. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, the visuals are on point who didn't go see 300 and at like the IMAX and all that shit. Cause you needed to see the rippling abs like really, really well. And there's um, plenty for all of us to enjoy. Uh-huh. There's plenty of that. But I remember shelling out the extra money, going to see it at IMAX and I sat there bored for most of it because it's like yeah it's pretty like sure it's interesting to look at but my god at what cost right there's two some hours of my life that i'll never get back yeah no it's definitely not uh the i i'm looking at his i i i liked man of steel um i did not let's still i, I apologize no hey man we all like what we like but i like man of yeah. steel but other than that i'm looking through everything he's done and maybe Dawn of the Dead was enjoyable, but that's pretty mm-hmm. much a, a remake. And other than that, Watchmen was okay. But yeah, oof. But I all these things all that we're talking pretty. about. Oh yeah, they look great. But all these things that we're talking about too, you know, it's it's important to discuss. Like we're talking about CGI mostly at this point, CGI or um, artistic stylization. But as you brought up in the beginning of our conversation, you kind of said, like, you know, what counts as visuals and what counts as visuals being striking enough to impact a film and uh, taking away the CGI aspect and just going to set design, cinematography, um, 
light saturation, that sort of thing. Uh, Wes Anderson and Michelle Gondry are oh. both brought to mind. Oh, God, yeah. Um, both of whom I love dearly, and I will go to my grave. Like, I don't care. Call Gondry? me a hipster. I don't give a shit. I will see every Wes Anderson film ever. Gondry did uh, Eternal Sunshine on the Spotless Mind, correct? Yeah, and Science of Sleep and uh, Mood Indigo. Um, and he's he did it. He's done a lot of really phenomenal music videos as well. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm from a visual standpoint. Obviously, Wes Anderson is. Could you call that guy a pioneer? You know, is he like a pioneering sort of guy? He definitely has his own thing. Like you see it pop up. Yeah. But it's not just. It's the the way he characterizes his his uh his characters like the way he builds those characters mm-hmm. it's almost they become a visual on their own they're so stylized the characters and all that stuff well yeah i mean he has his aesthetic um but i've got to say one of the reasons i loved stranger things as much as i did is because the way that that was produced and and brought about reminded me a lot of wes anderson uh, not in the theme specifically, but in the execution. Uh, basically, when TV you watch, show? yeah, like when you watch Wes Anderson, he has a very specific aesthetic um, that he strikes in you. You know what I mean? Um, it's a very, it's almost like you can taste listening to Bob Dylan when you watch him. Someone to open each and every door, but it ain't me, be. No, 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 it ain't me, be. It ain't me you're looking for. Yeah, you know what I mean? He's, he's kind of got the very specific style of a mix of modernization and the fixed 50s, 60s, 70s. Everything's kind of very, um, oh, what's that? Sepia tone? You know what I mean? Like everything, yeah. yeah, everything is very sepiatone ish. It feels that way anyway. Everything's very uh, symmetrical. Um, so it kind of like it takes you back to this clean folk feeling. You know what I mean? It, it, it evokes a feeling. Uh, and that's a large part of the enjoyment. And I feel like Stranger Things is the same thing, except with the feeling that it's evoking is nostalgia in the 80s. Yeah, oh, yeah. So it's like the stylization, like they're completely different executions, but they kind of both make you feel something by experiencing them. And that's okay. their big cachet. You sold me. You got me here. Okay. So <laughs> Wes Anderson and Stranger Things. Maybe I'm, it's a hot take and everyone's going to yell I'm at me. I'm not a fan of Stranger Things, but you sold me there. That it, I mean, you can't deny that, right? Because it is Stranger Things is a nostalgia porn to the nth degree. Um, yeah, there's things in that that in that show that work and things that don't. But the but you cannot argue that the nostalgia porn isn't there. You know all the little things and and it is more than just you know seeing them with their proton packs and and right. you know all their '80s gear and all that stuff. It is sort of a a a Wonder Years sort of vibe going on. Uh, you know, but for the '80s where you're just transported back to that moment. I'm a, I'm a man of a certain age, so I kind of fall right into that age group of those kids in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could see that. And, and Wes, Wes Anderson obviously does transport you to this place and, you know, tasting Bob Dylan is, I can understand because that is a, I, I'm a Bob Dylan fan. I, I, I Me too. yeah, I, I actually saw that guy in concert once and he was, <gasps> yeah. And this was, wow. Now probably 
10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. And even then, he was incoherent. No idea what he was saying. <laughs> I had a hard time picking up what even the song was. And I've got his songs like memorized and all memorized. this stuff in my head. And sure. he's playing the hits. It's an old school tour and stuff like that. And incoherent. But, you know, I had a great time listening to Bob Dylan. It was a good time. He transported me to that place. Well, as long as you've got a good time, you know what I mean? And, I mean, the same can be said for visuals and film and film in general. Like, as long as you enjoy the experience, then that's all you need. And I feel like uh, visuals are a big part of that, but they absolutely cannot exist on their own, at least for my enjoyment. Right. So I was doing a little research looking for podcasts to recommend on our, on our glorious Marcus played podcast here. And I came across a, a one called mad about movies. I don't know if you've ever heard of them or anything, but uh, they were talking about on their podcast about the visuals in crimson peak and how they elevate. They weren't big fans of the film similar to what I am, but they talk about, they, they compared it to Cinderella. I, I get why people have liked this film and I, you know, this is a better film. But it's it's also a little more frustrating though because I think I think this could be an A film. They're, like they'll visit best case scenario is a B plus, right? And instead, for me, it was like a C plus. So that's that's okay. This movie could be an A or an A plus movie, and it's just it just doesn't quite. I don't know. It just never for me. It never finds the rhythm that it needs to get to that point. And scripting is for is me. It, it's it reminded me of believe it or not, this movie came out this year also. Um, Cinderella, remember that movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, B solid B plus, really. But this is like that movie, like narrative wise, but with the visuals um, tenfold. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get like that. it's just kind of a B plus narrative. Like you know what it's going to happen. It's just kind of you could follow along, but there's so much else going on around it for me that it made up for that. Um, what what Cinderella didn't have. Does that make sense as well? Yeah, I get that. Sure. So Cinderella is the new a, one with the Kenneth Branagh director. The live action, yeah, right. Cinderella yeah. thing, okay. right? And they were saying that the that the movie on its own is fine, it's okay, but you know the artwork that goes into it, the dresses and the style, and and being like you said, transported to that world, elevated that movie from just a real you know generic thing to something different. Um, I think that my biggest complaint with that Cinderella movie was that they kind of cut out the music because I mm-hmm. think that Dis- those Disney films that they're obviously Disney's trying to make bang, bang out some bucks by converting all of them live action, whatever. And I think that the, uh, one of the big, um, the big, you know, allure, the big attractions to those films is the music. You know, they, they yeah. all come with these great songs and Cinderella didn't have any of that. So it was when you took it really straightforward it really bugged me out, but all those visuals and all that place really sort of accentuated that. And it got me to thinking like, almost it's almost a bad thing because I guess in my angry sort of rebellion sort of way, I'm kind of pissed at Disney for, for cashing in on literally just taking those same movies and making them quote unquote live action. Oh, I'm pissed. Don't even get me started on beauty and the beast. Oh God. And like, I'm with you. Every one of my friends loved it. You know what I mean? And listen, it started an, an argument here in my house with my wife because she came home and actually talked about how good it was, and I was just belligerently angry. Well, what's upsetting is that there are good. You can lift out good things about it. Kevin Klein's always beautiful and amazing. So is Josh Gad, in my opinion. Um, and what's that new 
Evermore, Nevermore, I don't know. But Dan Stevens, The Beast, sings a new song that they wrote for it, and it's a good new song. But it just didn't hit any of the buttons that the original yeah. Beauty and the Beast did for yeah. me. And I got to tell you, I'm not even a huge fan of that original. Oh, you know settle I mean? down, lady. F- settle down. <laughs> it's not I love my the favorite. Original. It's not my favorite Disney movie. It's just slightly problematic in theme, but uh, that's neither here nor there. The point is, is that it was abs- the live action was absolute garbage, and I'm completely in your camp where it's like, stop remaking these movies just yeah. for the cachet of it. Right. You know what I mean? Especially because all you know, they're the doing is changing the visual. That's all they're doing. Yeah. Well, the visuals in Cinderella, you know, that's yeah, they were fine. They're but, pretty. They're pretty for sure. I mean, they were pretty, but like everything else was just severely lacking. I feel like you know. No one was really super into it. I don't know. Well, Kate Blanchett, I, I think, was was out there chewing scenery, and I liked what she was doing with the uh, the stepmother. Well, she never calls. She never phones anything in. Nope. You know what I mean? So it's like, no, you're perfect. Stay the way you are. Everybody else, try to get up to that level. Yeah, That'd yeah, be preferable. Um, but you mentioned like the dresses and uh, oh, but what did you think of Into the Woods? The live action Into the Woods. Oh, That's God. got a lot of visualization. I to love it. that song. You know, I, I love, I love the song, and I love the way the song when they sing it, how they kind of weave everything together. But man, mm-hmm. after a while, I I just wanted to walk out of the theater. Uh, <gasps> really? Yeah, especially like there's an end, and there's like a whole another you know twenty thirty minutes that mm-hmm. that happened that I was just tapped out. And, and but there's some sequences that I loved in that movie. Obviously the singing of the Into the Woods song. There's a sequence with Chris Pine that I thought was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. But Well the princes are great. Oh, yeah. um, but go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I no. I mean I just I, I thought the movie went a little long, but the like you're like you know, kind of in keeping with the the theme is that the visuals were awesome. I mean it's it's uh i think that a costume design and things like that never get their fair share like they're the oscars that kind of get played and the music always gets turned on really quick on the costume designers when they come up for their award you know like let those people there's a there's a beauty and artistry to the costume design that that never gets enough love i mean the 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 band at the underneath the stage at the academy awards starts playing the music about 20 seconds into their speech never gives them love no, and they should get lots of love. But yeah, I guess my point is is that even though the visuals were great in Into the Woods, like the original material from like Sondheim and Lappin, like that's gonna lend itself to a good uh, experience regardless of the visuals. You know what I mean? That's why that musical remains popular is because it can go on for nothing zero budget on high school stages like throughout America <laughs> and everywhere. Or Gary Marshall can pop it into a really great uh, new version, like cinematic version of the story. And I don't feel like with Cinderella, I guess the comparison that I'm making is that story and uh, talent and script and ambiance doesn't have to be sacrificed for the sake of visuals. I, I don't feel like it needs to be like one or the other. And both Cinderella and Beauty and the Beast kind of fell that way to me. Like, hey, look at all the beautiful stuff. It's all the it's all the great stuff that you remember from your childhood. And everyone looks the part, so don't really pay attention to the fact that, you know, Emma Watson is barely acting. Oh yeah. She's just she's just there kind of I don't know what she's doing to be honest with you. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this. I was again going kind of going back to the sort of masking agent that visuals can be. 
Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know it's it's there's almost this discussion about how we hate Avatar now. Now you know, even though it was the biggest movie of all time and extremely popular in its day. But Avatar is a extremely simple movie. It's basically Fern Gully or Dances with Wolves. You know, it's it's almost nothing. But yeah, visuals. You know, obviously through the roof. What it, what it created that world, um, heavy CGI, all of this new technology that James Cameron came up with. It would you call that a bad aspect of visuals, where it sort of blankets and masks this sort of trite story and then gets us sucked into it from a cash paying uh, film goer or is it I don't know something different I personally and this is just my opinion because I would I never liked Avatar like from the second that I first saw it I thought it was all right I thought it was Fern Gully I was like ah, it's all right it's well cool. that was the thing is I was like okay so this is Fern Gully can you get to the point or does this have to be three hours long yeah God. you know what I mean yeah and uh I felt like the visuals, I don't know, if, if if beautiful visualization is your thing, then you'll like it. To me, it just kind of seemed like a monumental waste of money and time, yeah. simply because the story wasn't there. I feel like the story doesn't have to be sacrificed on the altar of something beautiful. Get a good story and then marry them with beautiful visuals. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Like, I'm not even that excited about getting it because we have a Disney. I live in Tampa, so we have a, a a Disney pass, so I can go to Orlando. It's like 45 minutes, and we take the the family, and they opened up the Pandora ride. I don't even care about going on the Pandora ride. That's how <laughs> how little I care about it. Or maybe that's what this film is, should have been from the get go. It's just a ride through that world, you know. Just get on the ride and have things flash at you. Have you know get immersed in the in the world and in in you know the Navi and the tales connecting and that kind of weird shit. Um, maybe that's what it should have been from the get go. Uh, yeah, I agree. Like to me, it was just kind of a big okay. You know, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. something I'm a little hesitant about, and it's tech that James Cameron, I guess, was working on when he was originally meant to direct it. But have you seen the trailer for? Alita, Battle Angel. Have you seen that? No. no clue. Okay. Never even heard of what. Uh, no. so, so, Battle Angel Alita is a graphic novel, anime, manga that I grew up consuming and reading and loving. And the main character, Golly, is just an all time hero of mine. And when I found out that James Cameron was going to be directing it, I was scared. And then I found out that he passed it on to Robert Rodriguez. And I was like, oh, cool. You'll do it right. And the trailer just came out. And they're doing this thing where basically um, Rosa Salazar has big, huge manga anime eyes. And it's a weird uh, visual technique that James Cameron always intended to do. And I'm on the fence about it. It looks a little weird to me. Um, But I'm going to give it a shot because what we were talking about before, where Avatar had almost no story to it, it was extremely simple. And some would say lacking, like with the unobtainium and all that crazy shit. Oh, God <laughs> like, almighty, yeah. Oh, I, I, like, almost vomited. Like, I remember sitting in the theater. Does nobody, like, come out of the, like, the production tent and tell somebody, like, like hey, man, hey, this probably a bad name. Bad name. FYI, somebody. everyone's going to, like, physically gag make, when Giovanni Ruiz Somebody's going to make fun this. of you. Like, yeah. it's it just ridiculous. But the Battle Angel story is a really beautiful and eloquently told one. So I'm hoping that whatever visuals 
uh, James Cameron has envisioned and Robert Rodriguez is going to take on, it's going to marry the best of both worlds, kind of like Del Toro did with Shape of Water. Beautiful story, beautiful visuals, and it just gives you this amazing world in which to live for about two hours. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've never heard of any of that stuff, but I tend to really enjoy Robert Rodriguez and what he brings to the table. Hey, so Terry, you've got some trailer um, watching to do. There we go. Yeah. I've got, I actually just jotted it down. So as soon as we're done here, we're going to, I'm going to go check that out. I, I guess one last movie I want to kind of talk about is um, a movie that I railed about being all sizzle, no steak is gravity. Ah. You know, there it's like another immersive experience, um, visually striking, you know, then again, we get into the sound design sort of aspect of things as well. You know, the lack of noise in space and all that stuff, but it becomes a very repetitive sort of film when you are just obstacle, 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 obstacle. That's all there is to it. I felt very dulled by it. I saw it in the theater and I saw it on the biggest screen possible. I saw it in 3d and all that stuff. And I thought it was amazing to look at an amazing technological achievement but i also sat there bored out of my <laughs> mind because the, the story was just eh, whatever and i was just very frustrated that year when it was being lauded as this you know the greatest thing since sliced bread and all these awards and all that stuff and is anybody talking about gravity anymore I don't know if they're still talking about gravity, but I definitely know that the director is continuing to receive accolades. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know what I mean? It's like maybe visuals kind of live on in their own uh, little impressive world, you know? Um, yeah. It, it's kind of like the uh, visuals from Alien, you know what I mean? It's like that's always going to be timeless. It's like a calling card. Yeah, timeless and groundbreaking, yeah. you know what I mean? So it's like visuals in and of themselves can live and can be enjoyed, and I'm sure that there's an entire audience that's there just for the visuals and just to see how well this CGI is done and uh, all of that, but you know, to me, I, I feel like as long as the visuals lend credence to the um, energy that the like film-going experience actually uh, puts out, um, that's the most important thing. So whether it's practical effects, whether it's, you know, with like Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones, whether it's uh, set design with uh, Wes Anderson, uh, color palettes and such, um, or whether it's just a bunch of like crazy CGI and imagery like, you know, Tarsem and Del Toro, I feel like in order to be truly... Um, effective visuals need to be married with the strong bones of a good story good acting good direction well amen i can't uh i can't close out the show any better than that <laughs> right there so i'm just gonna go ahead and chop right there thanks for tuning in to marcus played and if you like what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes or your pod player of choice. And be sure to check out the podcast that we featured on this week's episode because we recommended them. So that means they're good. So, and if you can't get enough of us, you can find more of our film-related content on followingfilms.com. 